0: Good afternoon to all of you, brethren. Certainly appreciate the uh, very beautiful special music from Mr. Ames' good friend, his wife, Catherine. It's a privilege to be able to speak to you here in Charlotte on a very beautiful afternoon. You know, I hope we all appreciate the, and, and I hope we're all thankful, really, for the opportunity to meet in peace on the Sabbath, especially in a world where um, many places around the world people are being shot at and bombs are falling and everything else, whereas we do have the privilege, at least right now, of meeting in a very peaceful setting. I hope that we can be thankful for that. You know, brethren, as Christians, we've been called out of this world and we have spiritual battles to fight. We have spiritual battles to fight and very important truths to defend. We live in a world today and in a society that wants to discredit and destroy the faith of many people. It wants to undermine the truths that have been given to Christians and they want to uh, uh, undermine and basically discredit Christians who believe and promote the truths that we have in the Scripture. What I'd like you to do in the beginning of the sermon, I'd like you to look at a couple of Scriptures just to notice what we're told in the Scriptures about the world in which we live and about the spiritual battles that we're going to face, whether in the first century or whether in the 21st century. If you turn to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. Paul was talking to the church and giving them advice, cautioning them, giving them warnings about what they were going to have to deal with as Christians. Ephesians chapter 6, if we look at verses 11 through 13. Paul is telling the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a big city. It was a major pagan temple there. A lot of things going on. And yet Paul used Eph- uh, Ephesus as a base for his operations in Asia Minor for a period of time. He's writing to Gentiles primarily. He says, put on the whole armor of God. In other words, don't go out without your armor on, your spiritual armor, that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the methods, the underhanded methods of Satan, the devil. And then he says, for we don't wrestle or we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. In other words, we're fighting against Satan and his demons and the influence that they can have over society and over us if we're not careful. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand... In every evil day, and having done all to stand. In other words, we've got to be able to defend what it is that we believe. We've got to understand the truth. We've got to understand how Satan operates. Because Satan is out to destroy the truth. He's out to discredit the scriptures. He's out to undermine the faith of anyone that he can You know, Jude makes a very similar statement in Jude verse 3, right before the book of Revelation. He writes in verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to earnestly contend or to vigorously defend the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And then he explains a little bit and puts this in a perspective. He says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. Individuals, it didn't seem like a big threat on the surface. But once they were able to spread their ideas, those ideas spread throughout that society then and is spreading throughout the world today. Certain men have crept in unawares or unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness. In other words, you don't have to follow those things in the Bible. You can make up your own mind. But notice what else that they do. And they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They deny that God exists. As we'll see people today, some people even deny that Jesus Christ He said, it's only a fable. It's only a made-up story. He never really existed. They deny God and they deny the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we're familiar with the scriptures in Matthew 24, verses 4 to 5, where Jesus said, many will come in my name and deceive many. They project the image that they're ministers of God. They claim that they believe in Jesus Christ. And yet the Jesus Christ of Orthodox Christianity is very different from the Jesus Christ that we read about in the Bible. I think most of us understand this. We've talked about this for quite some time over the years. You know, the Jesus Christ of the Bible did not have long hair. He wasn't born on December 25th. Uh, He was not raised on a Sunday morning. He didn't do away with the laws of God by nailing it to the cross. But this is what Orthodox Christianity, this is the Jesus that they tend to want to project. And I think we understand that. But turn, if you would, to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, because Peter mentioned something very similar to what we just read previously. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Now Peter, too, is warning against Spiritual battles that we're going to have to face as Christians in the world in which we live. And Peter's looking ahead. He says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. You know, Jesus Christ came to this earth to give His life for the sins of mankind. The Bible talks about we were bought with a price. That price was the death of Jesus Christ. You know, what Peter's saying here is people will deny Him. Deny Him. He doesn't exist. You don't have to follow those teachings. The word deny here means to ignore, to reject, disown. I don't believe in Jesus. As we'll see, some people say, I don't even believe He existed. They deny these things. They don't believe in the Jesus of the Scriptures. Verse 2, it says, Many will follow their destructive or misleading ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. It's a bunch of silly stories. It's a bunch of silly stories. They're made up by people. As we will see in the sermon, down through the years, many people have doubted the miracles, they have doubted the resurrection, they have doubted the virgin birth. They deny these things ever happen. Other scripture in Second Peter chapter three, verse three. Peter's mentioning there, know this first, that scoffers, people who make fun of the Scriptures, who make fun of Jesus Christ, who make fun of the teachings of Christianity, scoffers will come in the last days. Scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? You know, if he doesn't exist, how is he going to return? You think he's going to return? That's a story. That's a vain hope. This is what Peter's warning about. He's warning about things that we're going to have to deal with. You know, there are people today that say that the, the Gospels weren't written by the name that's on the book. They were written later by other people. We don't know who they are, but uh, it obviously wasn't the people who wrote the books. There are people today that say many of the New Testament books are forgeries. They weren't written by the people who claimed to write them. We don't know who did it, but uh, these are claims that are made today. Brethren, these are some of the dangerous heresies promoted today in books, and classrooms, on the Internet. And we've got to know how to defend ourselves and defend our families against these very satanic ideas. One other scripture I'd like to look at before we... Get into the meat of the sermon in 2nd Timothy, 2nd Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14 through 19. Paul is advising Timothy, and here's, he's giving Timothy advice as a young minister. He says, Here's what you need to do in dealing with congregations and building churches. He says, Remember that, or remind them, that is the people in the congregation, of these things, charging them before the Lord. Don't strive about words to no profit. And don't get involved in arguments that have no answers. Don't get involved in in discussions that go nowhere, that don't help anybody. But be diligent. The old King James says, study, or study diligently to present yourselves approved unto God. A worker that does not need to be ashamed, be able to rightly divide, explain, teach, understand the word of truth. He says, avoid profane and idle babblings, opinions that are not based on facts. He says, don't get involved with these things. Then he mentions several individuals in verse 17, verse 18, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection was already past, uh, And they overthrow the faith of some. We've got to be careful what we take in, what we listen to, what we consider, especially if it's not true. We need to be able to prove what is the truth and discern what is an opinion or what is a, a speculation that's not based on truth. But the important thing I want to notice in verse 19, Paul says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. That solid foundation are the teachings of Jesus Christ. That solid foundation are the principles of Scripture. Let's notice in First Timothy chapter 3. Timothy chapter 3. Where this foundation is discussed. Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. He says, But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. The pillar and the ground of truth. You look that up in a number of different um, uh, translations. It's the support of. The buttress, the bulwark, it's the, the structure that holds everything together. It can also be uh, translated as the foundation of truth. The teachings of the Church of God based upon the Scriptures, the Bible says, is the foundation. And we've got to prove, brethren, that the Bible is the Word of God. You need to understand that. You need to be confident in that you need to know where the church of God is today and what the church teaches and what it's based upon. Not opinions, but upon the Word of God. This is how you build a firm foundation. In the sermon today, I want to talk about the real Jesus versus the different Jesus of critical scholars. You know, there's, there's a different Jesus in the Orthodox Christian churches today. But there's an even different Jesus in the opinions of critical scholars today. I want to talk about that a little bit. You know, I wasn't overly interested in this, and so I started reading about some of the ideas floating around today and where those ideas come from. And it was kind of surprising to find out where the modern up-to-date ideas of scholars today actually come from. It did not come from their fertile brains. It came from ideas in the past that they have borrowed from. I want to talk about that today. The reason is because these ideas are spreading through society. Some of the people writing books today that are being purchased by many, many people are promoting some of the ideas I'm going to talk about. And we've got to be able to deal with these ideas and not be blown away by these ideas. You know, we've talked a lot in the past about how Orthodox Christianity focuses on the person of Jesus and is, overlooks his message. I think mean, We need to understand both the person and the message because the scholars today attack the person They're also attacking the credibility of the message today. So we need to understand both the person and the message. And that's what I want to do in the sermon today. To begin with, what do modern critics have to say about Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about people on the golf course that miss a shot that use his name in vain. I'm talking about critics that speak many languages They've read uh, the, the scriptures in, in Greek and Hebrew and Latin and whatever. What do they have to say? As we discuss this, I'd like you to keep in mind another scripture. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. Because Paul was cautioning the church in Corinth. And the congregation in Corinth would be like having a, a congregation in New York or Los Angeles or some big city today. Now, these were not backwoods hillbillies. These were business people. These were people involved in commerce, probably educated people. But in chapter 2, in verse 11, he says, Lest Satan should take advantage of you, unless Satan would deceive you. For we are not ignorant of his devices. In other words, don't be ignorant of how Satan operates. Don't be ignorant of the arguments that Satan uses, whether it's in Corinth or whether it's today. We need to understand what is fact, what is opinion, what is right, what is wrong, what is truth, what is error. So that we can survive and uh, defend the faith. And not be blown away. In 1 Peter chapter 5, another couple of scriptures just to think about as we get into the sermon today. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. But Peter is writing here, giving advice to his audience. In verse 8, he says, be sober, be alert, keep your eyes open, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, and he is an adversary, for each one of us. Walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. There some people who think that uh, if we don't say something, Satan doesn't know what we're thinking. Well, <laughs> Satan knows what we're thinking, he can influence thoughts. And if he sees you doubting, he can probably cause certain things to happen to increase those doubts. You've got to be aware of these things. He's vigilant. And we've got to be careful. Paul or Peter then says resist Him. But you know, you can't resist Him if you don't recognize Him. You can't resist Him if you don't recognize where He's coming from. If you don't recognize the arguments that He will be using, whether it's in Corinth or whether it's today. Resist Him steadfast in the faith. You've got to hang on to the faith. You've got to hang on to what you've proven to be true. And if things don't match up to that, then you don't pay any attention to it. We've got to be able to slice through errors that come up, arguments that come up, that are only based upon opinions and not upon facts. So what I'd like to do next is to look at some people down through history that have criticized the Bible, criticized Jesus Christ. Like I said before, I wasn't overly interested in these guys or what they said until I started reading some of the arguments, some of the ideas promoted by scholars today. And when you compare what scholars today, critical scholars, liberal scholars are saying today, and you go back and read some of these first and second and third century critics, you realize they're saying the same thing. These modern scholars didn't come up with a lot of new ideas. They're recycling old ideas. first person I want to talk about is a man named Celsus, C-E-L-S-U-S. He was a Greek philosopher, lived in the second century, wrote about 170 A.D. He was an anti-Christian writer, and he wrote to refute the scriptures. He says... What you read in the Bible are just a bunch of foolish ideas. And these Christians are dangerous to the Roman Empire. He had an argument. He said, if the Christian God is all-powerful, why does he allow natural disasters like floods and various things like that that kill a lot of innocent people? And why does he allow all the evils in the world? This was Celsus' writing in the 2nd century. we are going to see this attitude and this idea keep popping up down through the centuries. He discounts miracles. He said Jesus used magic and sorcery. And Jesus' father was actually a Roman soldier by the name Panthera. And one of the individuals that I taught with in Ambassador College... About 20, 30 years ago, is now writing books in which he suggests Jesus' father was a Roman soldier by the name of Panthera. He's merely copped the idea from a first century anti Christian writer. And yet, this individual says he really admires Jesus and that the Bible is a wonderful book, but he doesn't believe what's in the Bible. He believes parts of it, but then other parts of it he doesn't, and it's his opinion that makes a decision what to believe and what not to believe. Celsus' arguments were refuted by Origen, or Origen, however you want to pronounce the name, one of the early Christian fathers, early church fathers, in which Origen says Celsus' stories are fabricated. He's making up these arguments, and there's no evidence behind them the arguments and this was in the second century as I mentioned these ideas keep popping up but it's interesting to know where they come from they're not new, they're not progressive they're looking backwards in time a hundred years later a man by the name of Porphyry P-O-R-P-H-Y-R-Y Porphyry is a Greek philosopher in the third century writing about 270 A.D. he was from Tyre and his parents were Phoenicians He wrote a work entitled Against the Christians. I'd like to read a little bit more about him. I didn't have time. But apparently, he got into philosophy pretty heavy. He went to Rome, changed his diet severely, and almost died. He was suicidal. It took him about five years to recover his mental health. I don't know whether he wrote the book Against Christians before or after he recovered his mental health. But he has a collection of arguments. He attacked the book of Daniel because the Christians said the prophecies in Daniel prove that there really is a God. So he attacked those. And he said that those prophecies were not written by Daniel about 550 B.C. They were written by some Jew about 150 B.C. In other words, they were written after the fact. So anybody can write after the fact and make it a prophecy. You know, I can say, I predict the United States will declarance independence in 1776 we look back in history of course that's what happened but I'm I'm saying that right now in 2014 and we can all look back and make predictions but this was his approach he said all this stuff was written after the fact Uh, he said that the the so called prophecies in the book of Daniel are lies ascribed to God because it all happened later nobody can predict the future and this is his argument no, no human being can predict the future so we can conclude then uh, these are all wrong he said miracles never happened it's interesting though Porphyry believed that Jesus existed but he was only a philosopher now, this is important he did believe and this was 3rd century he believed Jesus really did exist but that he was only a philosopher he not the son of God Again, Porphyry's ideas were refuted by a number of early uh, church writers, Eusebius, Jerome, and others. And yet these ideas still exist today. One of the things I came across was interesting. mentioned that Augustine, writing in the 5th century, says Porphyry was once a Christian who lost his faith. He was once a believer in Jesus Christ, but lost his faith. We're going to see this again. The gentleman that I taught with at Ambassador College once believed, as you and I did, or do. But apparently he's lost that faith as a result of getting a number of higher degrees. We jump ahead a 1,000 years to the 1800s. French and German philosophers, and these were basically radical free thinkers. Now, free thinkers think about anything (laughs) They're not limited by the scriptures. They theorize all kinds of things. And if you recall the sermon I gave uh, several weeks ago, uh, the modern era supposedly began with the Reformation and the um, uh, the Renaissance, where people began to question the Bible, question the uh, the Catholic Church, and question whether there was a God or not. By the 1800s, we're moving into what is called the progressive era, in which people not only questioned, they just dumped the Bible and said, There is no God. And it was about this time that some of these French and German philosophers began promoting the idea that Jesus Christ never existed. He never existed. That uh, the books of the Bible are forgeries; they weren't written by the names of the authors, um, and all of this came from what is called higher criticism, where you look at the book and what is written there and say, "Well, I don't think uh, Peter really read that or wrote that." Well, how do you know? Well, I, I just don't think he wrote it. You know, they had this Jesus seminar a number of years ago where they put a glass jar on a table and you put in different colored marbles. One color was Uh, If if you believe Jesus said it, put in a red marble. If you believe Jesus didn't say it, put in a black marble or whatever it was. These are opinions. These are opinions based on, on people's ideas. Not based on facts, but they're based on opinions. What's interesting is one of these French philosophers was a Count Volnay, who visited America on several occasions, spent time at Mount Vernon with George Washington, spent time at Monticello with Thomas Jefferson, who was apparently a good friend of Thomas Paine, who was a known <laughs> agnostic, atheist, whatever. But they were picking up on some of these ideas that were circulating around at that time. It's really, it's kind of interesting looking at some of this uh, because there's a group of people today called mythicists. They believe that Jesus was a myth. And they believe that uh, some writers in the 2nd or 3rd century uh, borrowed from uh, uh, writing ideas and myths about solar deities and uh, made it into Jesus Christ and the apostles. That Jesus was represented by the sun. And the 12 apostles were actually represented by the 12 signs of the zodiac. And that Reuben was obviously Aquarius. One of the twelve uh, tribes, because we're told in the Bible he was unstable as water, so he's obviously Aquarius. But this, this, this is the depth of scholarship. Like one of the individuals promoting these ideas today, a woman who writes a number of books, she makes a statement that uh, male circumcision causes permanent brain damage. Sorry, guys. Now what I'm saying is these are the ideas floating around but it's a mixture of all kinds of stuff. But these are some of the people claiming that Jesus Christ never existed but they don't limit to that. They say Moses was a myth. He never existed. Uh, David and Goliath, these are just stories. They're fables. And this was promoted even among many theologians up until the last 10 years or so when they actually found uh, fragments of, uh, of writing in the Middle East that said House of David which indicates David did exist they also found a pottery fragment uh, near Gath in the Middle East where Goliath came from and the name Goliath is on the pottery shirt that doesn't mean it's the Goliath of the Bible what it means is the name was popular the name existed at that time so with these discoveries, it kind of knocks in the head some of these ideas that you know David and Goliath were just mythical people. They never existed. Well, they did. They did. And the evidence points in that direction. Another name that some of you will remember, Albert Schweitzer, writing a book about 1906, so the early part of uh, the, the 1900s, wrote a book entitled The Quest for the Historical Jesus in which he was really knocking on the head these theorists, these ideas, the people that had ideas that Jesus didn't exist. But he also makes some very interesting statements. So he was partly right and partly mixed up. He said that Jesus did exist, but he was a very different Jesus from the Jesus of Orthodox Christianity. He was a very different Jesus from the Jesus of orthodox Christianity. He was not the sweet Jesus that most people believe in today. He had a very strong apocalyptic message, a very powerful message about a coming kingdom of God when this world would come to an end. That Jesus would come and set up a kingdom on this earth and banish evil, and that Christ would rule. Now, why did he believe that? Because that's what you read in the book. That's what you read in the book. He read the book. He read the Bible. It's interesting. He had. uh, He he was quite an accomplished musician. He was a philosopher. He was a theologian. He became a medical missionary to Africa. He understood quite a bit about the Bible. Where he missed, where he was wrong, he said that Jesus was mistaken because he thought the kingdom would come in his time, in his lifetime, or in the lifetime of his apostles. And he based it on a couple of scriptures. I want to look at those quickly because we can see he misunderstood the scriptures. He thought Jesus misunderstood the scriptures, but... uh, I think uh, Jesus will have a very interesting conversation with Mr. Schweitzer, Dr. Schweitzer, when he comes up in the resurrection. Go to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. This was Schweitzer's argument, but a number of modern critics use the same argument today. In Mark chapter 9, verse 1 Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. And then immediately after that, if you read the next several verses, uh, Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. So what really Jesus is talking about, some of you standing here will not... uh, taste death until you see the the kingdom come basically in power. And then they saw the transfiguration just immediately after that. If you look in a number of commentaries, even the commentaries say that what they saw was a momentary manifestation of the power of the kingdom of God. And it's not necessary to interpret this verse that Jesus taught the second coming would occur in the lifetime of his apostles. What Jesus was talking about, you're going to get a sample. You're going to see what life is going to be like in the kingdom whenever they were trans, whenever they saw Christ transfigured into a new body, a new shape, and so on. So Schweitzer looked at this as well as um, some other scriptures. I think in Mark chapter 13, let's look at that one. Mark 13 verse 30, I think it is. Yeah, that's the wrong scripture. There's another scripture talking about Christ returning and talks about this generation. And what Jesus was talking about is really the generation that's alive when these things begin to happen. That would be, here we go, verse 20. I was in the wrong one. Mark 13, verse 29 and 30. Mark 13 is the prophecies about things that are going to happen just prior to the return of Jesus Christ. And we read in Matthew 24, these things are going to happen at the end of the age, not uh, whenever Christ was alive or the disciples were alive. Verse 29, so also when you see these things happening, know that the, uh, that the time is near, it's at the door. As assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. What Jesus was talking about was the generation at the end of the age is going to see these things beginning to happen, not necessarily the people that were living at that time. So Schweitzer takes these scriptures, and he he takes them out of context, doesn't understand the full context, and he comes to the conclusion that Jesus was deluded. He was mistaken. He didn't understand. Uh, He was hoping everything would happen in his time, and whenever it didn't happen, then he was disillusioned. So he died <laughs> uh, believing he was wrong. Well, it was Schweitzer that was wrong. He didn't understand, but it was a mixture. Schweitzer had some of the things right, but he missed out on a number of things. final person I want to mention is a Dr. Bart Ehrman, D-H-R-M-A-N. He's the chairman of the Department of Religion or has been chairman, of the Department of Religion, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Very prestigious school. He's the author of best selling books on the Bible and Jesus. Some think he's one of the most foremost scholars of the New Testament and early Christianity. Others have some different ideas about Dr. Erman, which I'll mention in just a minute. It's interesting though, as a teenager, he was a fundamentalist Christian. He attended Moody Bible Institute for a couple of years. He graduated from Wheaton College. It's a Christian school in Illinois, a conservative place for the most part. But he lost his faith as he proceeded to gain a Master of Divinity degree and a Doctor of Degree in New Testament Theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. He says, I'm not a Christian. I'm now an agnostic. I don't believe in anything. I'm an agnostic with atheistic leanings. So he's gone way off in a different direction. But he teaches an introductory course to uh, Christianity at University of North Carolina in which he literally begins to undermine the faith of students that are there. He says, many of my students have never heard what I'm telling them before. And it blows many of them away. I tell them that the New Testament is not reliable. It contains a lot of errors and discrepancies. It contains some history, but we, it's hard to tell which is which. So he's unloading on students with things like this. He said, Jesus probably existed, but we can't be sure of his teachings. The miracles, the resurrection, the virgin birth are highly improbable, probably never happened. Because you know, they just don't happen today. His lectures uh, have shaken the faith of some of the students. He's writing books that some people are using to justify not having any beliefs today. Came across a very interesting book entitled Truth Matters. Truth Matters is written by three PhDs who are scholars in New Testament Christianity. One of the authors was the father of a girl that was in one of Dr. Ehrman's classes. And he literally takes Dr. Ehrman to task. Um, He says, Dr. Ehrman knows about things that he doesn't mention. In other words, he knows better than to indicate that what he's saying is the total truth. Uh, writing about the book, a person mentions the book plays hardball with flippant scholarly pretensions of certain professors. That's pretty strong. Who make claims that are not supported by the evidence? This book, Truth Matters, sets the record straight. Dr. Ehrman chooses what he wants to highlight and rarely acknowledges counterarguments. He doesn't acknowledge that there are other perspectives that he just doesn't cover in class. His answers are not the only answers. In other words, he'll give an answer and say, this is what we all believe. Well, that's not what they all believe. There are other answers. Uh, The book says, plenty of credible scholars who look at the same evidence arrive at very different conclusions and then he says, skeptical scholars like Dr. Ehrman are inherently resistant to the truth claims of Christianity. They simply don't want to believe the Bible. The authors on this book, are Andreas Kustenberger, uh, Daryl Bach, and Josh Chatroux. Uh, the reason I mention the authors is there's another book entitled Truth Matters, but it's a very different subject, and not by these authors. The subtitle of the book is Confident Faith in a Confusing World. But I thought it was interesting that the father of one of the girls that was in Dr. Ehrman's class wrote the book, along with some other scholars, to basically provide answers to young people that may be confused by what they're hearing in uh, Dr. Ehrman's classes. So these are scholars that are have things to say today. There are a lot of opinions but they're not based on facts, they're based on opinions. I think we need to understand these things because these ideas are spreading. You know, Irma's books are selling very well and people are buying into these ideas and we're gonna encounter these ideas. You will, or as young people, you'll encounter them. You'll encounter them with teachers and uh, in some cases, preachers in some cases, you'll find them on the internet. But how do we counter these ideas? How do we defend the faith in the Bible? And this is what I want to do for the remainder of the sermon. How do we defend the faith that was once delivered to the saints? Let's look at a couple of the questions very quickly. Did Jesus Christ really exist? Can you prove that? I remember when I was coming into contact with the church. My brother had been attending Brickett Wood and been attending a church I think for a couple years, about a year before that. And I came home for summer vacation after my first year in graduate school and my brother came back from England uh, and he arranged for a minister to stop by our house to talk with our family. And uh, I listened a lot, but my dad was asking questions. My dad, I think, had read some of these German philosophers. Uh, He may have read uh, Schweitzer's book on the search for the historical Jesus. But he began asking the minister questions. Sid, uh, he said, points his finger, he said, can you show me outside the Bible any proof that Jesus ever existed? And the minister couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. But I, I put that question on a shelf in my mind. I went back to Mississippi where I was going to graduate school at that time and began looking. It's not that hard to find. You go to uh, Hastings Bible Dictionary Look up Jesus. And it talks about a number of non-biblical sources that refer to Jesus Christ, which indicates uh, he existed. But if we look first at uh, some biblical references, what is the biblical evidence that Jesus existed? I'll give you some scriptures. We won't look them all up. But in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience And he goes through the genealogy of Joseph, basically to show that Jesus Christ was a descendant of David, and that genealogy can be traced back to David. In the book of Luke, Luke gives a genealogy, and it's basically the genealogy of Mary, but Mary was the mother of Jesus. And what he's doing is tracing Jesus' genealogy through his mother back to David, so this would have been evidence to the Jews that you can actually trace the genealogy of Jesus back to David. And if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13, where God, through uh, I think it was the prophet Nathan, told David that his descendant would sit upon a throne. That throne would last forever. It's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. So you've got these prophecies in the Bible that indicate that what Jesus would do. And Jesus Christ came and actually did those things. In Matthew chapter 2, it talks about Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. And Matthew quotes Isaiah 7 verse 14. Write it down, look it up. Where Jesus was prophesied to be born of a virgin. 700 years before he was born. There are no prophecies in the Quran that predicted that Muhammad would be born at a certain place at a certain time and do certain things. But one of the exciting things about the Bible is the Jews had the book of Isaiah for some 700 years. And here comes a man who fulfilled these prophecies. In Micah chapter 2, There's a prophecy there. Micah wrote about 700 B.C. that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And the Gospels indicate he was born in Bethlehem. Well, you've got proof that he existed. Proof that these things happened. Joseph was warned to flee to Egypt to escape the the killing of the children there by Herod. There's a prophecy in Hosea 11, verse 1. And I'd encourage you to go back to the book of Matthew, jot these things in the margin. Because the prophecy in Hosea 11:1 1 said Jesus would be called out of Egypt. He would come out of Egypt. To come out of Egypt, you have to go into Egypt. So what Matthew is doing is showing the Jews, look, here are the prophecies. Here is what is happening today. Jesus Christ is fulfilling these prophecies of a coming Messiah. You can't do that with Muhammad. You can't do that with the Koran. So, Matthew is proving to the Jews who Jesus Christ was. The Gospels clearly describe Christ's birth, his ministry, his miracles, his death, and his resurrection. The Gospels indicate quite clearly that he did exist. It's interesting, Dr. Ehrman doesn't believe the Bible, but he believes Jesus existed. And he wrote a book entitled, Did Jesus Exist? And it's not bad. He doesn't understand a lot of things, but he does understand and he presents the evidence that exists, that Jesus Christ did exist. In fact, he makes some very interesting statements. He says, no trained scholar today doubts the existence of Jesus Christ. So these people that believe that Jesus was a myth, you can accept their opinion if you want, but if you take the time to prove these things, they're way off base. Now, Ehrman makes another interesting statement. He's partly there and then he's partly not there. He says, we have no uh, uh, definite eyewitness reports about Jesus written in his lifetime. Now, if you know your Bible, you should say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And again, this this person that wrote the book on uh, truth matters, he says, Ehrman makes statements, but nobody challenges him. If you don't challenge him, then you, then you believe him. But these statements are able they can very easily be challenged. Notice in Matthew 17, again talking about the, uh, the transfiguration. And it's important to go to Matthew 17 first. Matthew 17, verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took... Notice who's here. Peter, James, and John, his brother led them up to a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his face shone. He was, he was transformed into a spirit being. And they had a chance to see what a spirit being would be like and what they would be like in the coming kingdom of God. But Peter was there. Now let's go to Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter was alive and living. He walked and talked with Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter 1, verse 16, notice what Peter is saying. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter was an eyewitness to what Jesus Christ did and said and thought. Here is an eyewitness, in spite of what Dr. Ehrman says. We don't have any eyewitnesses. We have eyewitnesses there. But again, he may decide, well, I don't want to believe that part, but I'll believe something else. But you can't do that if you're going to be a scholar. Well, I guess you can do it, (laughs) if you can get away with it. Let's look at one other very interesting scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What I'm trying to do, brethren, is just show there is evidence for what we believe. And we need to nail these things down. We're not dealing with opinions. We're dealing with evidence. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, first couple of verses. Paul is again talking with the church in Corinth. He's emphasizing the evidence for Christianity. Verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Which I preached to you, which you also received in which you stand. Here's something firm you can stand on. By which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. You don't buy into opinions, buy into what is solid, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all, fundamentally, that which I received, that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, most professing Christians believe that, that Jesus died for our sins. What they slide off on sometimes is that he was actually resurrected, too. And this is where the critical scholars get off. They, they believe that Jesus lived, that he died, that he did some things, whatever it was. But as Ehrman does, he, he doesn't talk about the resurrection. He doesn't talk about the miracles, but Apostle Paul did talk about those things, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That he was seen by Cephas or Peter and by the twelve. Here were witnesses. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Of whom the greater part remain present. They're still alive today. Now Paul couldn't have said that if there weren't anybody living that saw Jesus Christ. That these people were alive. You could check up on these things, but some have fallen asleep. So Ehrman is off base when he says, we don't have any living witnesses or any people that are witnesses that lived at his time. Well, the Bible says we do. And when Paul makes this statement, he was seen by 500 and most of those people are still alive today. You can go check it out. Now, remember... Dr. Meredith was talking about when he first came to Ambassador College to check up on Mr. Armstrong. He was going around nosing here and nosing out. He said, I'm from Missouri. You guys show me. <laughs> I want to see if that's really true. You know, I, I heard him speak about those things whenever I learned about Ambassador College and the church. Uh, I attended for a couple of months. I went to the feast, and I got on a bus. Uh, in December during our Christmas break when I was going to graduate school and I went to Pasadena because I wanted to see what was out there. I got to talk to Dr. Meredith, got to talk to Dr. Hay, I saw Mr. Armstrong, got to sit in on some classes and I concluded, this is for real. This is for real. It's not some make-believe type of thing. It was for real. And brethren, we've got to do things like this to check out what the truth is and then hang on to it. So, Dr. Ehrman is very clear that Jesus existed, but then he says, We don't really know what he taught because we can't be sure. He says, uh, We don't have any living or we don't have any witnesses from that time. Well, we do have witnesses from that time. And they're not only in the Bible. Let me give you a couple of other references. You can find this on your own. You can go to a Bible dictionary. Uh, You can go to historical sources. You can go to the source itself. But Dr. Ehrman mentions these things in his book. He says, Pliny the Younger, Pliny was a, a Roman writer, wrote about 117 A.D. Pliny makes just a short statement. He said, Christians met illegally in the Roman Empire and sang hymns to Christ as God. So here's a Roman writer, talks about Christ, people singing hymns to him as if he were a god. Not just an ordinary person. But here's a Roman writer, first, uh, second century. Another Roman biographer, Suetonius, S-U-E-T-O-N-I-U-S, wrote a book entitled The Lives of the Twelve Caesars. And it's a pretty graphic book about what the Roman emperors got into. But he mentions that the Jews were expelled from Rome by Claudius between 40 and 50 AD for rioting. And he says, at the instigation of Christus, he spells it C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. It's referring to Christ. Now, Christ wasn't in Rome. But even uh, Ehrman makes the comment. He says, the riots were apparently triggered by Jews who believed that Christ was the Messiah and other Jews who did not believe that Christ was the Messiah. And they were arguing, fighting back and forth, and Claudius said, get him out of here. But here's a classical reference from Roman history to an individual by the name of Crestus, or Christ. Tacitus, a Roman historian writing in his book called The Annals, and he's writing about a period of time from 14 to 68 A.D. He says Nero had actually accused the Christians of starting a fire that destroyed a lot of Rome. And the story was that Nero started the fire because he wanted to rebuild parts of Rome. So he just wanted to destroy parts of Rome so they could be rebuilt. But he says Nero accused the Christians of starting a fire... But Tacitus says the name Christian comes from Christ, who was put to death in Judea by Pontius Pilate. Here's a historical reference to Jesus Christ by a Roman historian. Maybe I'll get to share this with my dad sometime. The dad, it was there. You didn't read far enough. You didn't get to the punchline. Josephus, a Jewish historian writing about 90 A.D., who was writing for the Romans, has a couple passages in which he refers to uh, Jesus Christ. One passage he says James, the brother of Jesus, the Messiah, has one passage. Another passage he says Jesus was a wise man, the Messiah, crucified by Pilate, appeared alive on the third day. So these passages are there. Again, a lot of scholars doubt that uh, uh, Josephus actually wrote these things. Some say that uh, they were inserted by other writers later. But Ehrman, who again doubts a lot of the Bible, he says most scholars believe that Josephus said something about Christ. We're not sure what he said, but the scholars believe that he said something. But at least you have... Josephus writing about the same thing but here are four sources that are non-biblical sources that refer to Christ in addition to what we find in the scriptures so the evidence is there And I think it's interesting that Dr. Ehrman who says I'm not a Christian I'm an agnostic with atheistic leanings very much believes that Jesus existed If he existed, then we ought to be able to find out what he taught. And if we go to the Bible, we find out what he taught. We ask the question, who was Jesus? Was he divine? You know, this gentleman that I taught with at Ambassador College, I met with him when I came back from England, and I just asked him, I said, Joe, his name's not Joe. I said, where are you? Where are you spiritually? And he kind of smiled and said, I don't believe Jesus was divine. Well, most scholars don't. Most liberal scholars don't. But we have addressed this subject many times. Uh, Mr. Ames has written an article that's been published in the Tomorrow's World magazine, Who Was Jesus? Uh, It was in the the, uh, July-August 2010 issue. Dr. Meredith has written a couple of articles, um, one in the July-August 2000, Tomorrow's World. Who was the God of the Old Testament? You know, most Orthodox Christians today don't really understand that. Well, the God of the Old Testament was this mean old guy that lives up in the clouds, and the God of the New Testament was Jesus, and he's so loving and warm and wonderful. They don't understand some basic things. Another article is coming out in September-October, Tomorrow's World, Which Jesus Do You Worship? Again, written by Dr. Meredith. There's another book that uh, we have used over the years entitled The Man Nobody Knows, written by Bruce Barton a number of years ago. He's talking about the Jesus that comes out of the scriptures as opposed to the Jesus that uh, many people believe in today. He talks about... Uh, Uh, Jesus the outdoor man. You know, you can't be a carpenter or a builder and work with stone and work with timbers and have nice smooth hands and long flowing robes. (laughs) It just doesn't add up. You know, if if that was the type of man that walked into the temple and said, you guys get out of (laughs) here. People would laugh. I said, Get the guy out of here. Who does he think he is? You know, if this guy comes in, he's tan, he got some muscles, he grabs a table and just flips it like that. He said, Once you out of here, you're making a den of thieves out of my father's house! Now get out of here! He Dead move. He Dead move. Because a person built like that, appeared like that, bronze and tan, They'd give him some space, <laughs> but not a guy that comes in and waves a you know the victory sign. Like, get out of here, guys! Come on, be good, be good. <laughs> See, it doesn't add up. And this guy, writing a number of years ago, notices these things. So they're two different people. They're the Jesus Christ promoted today and the one that's in the book are two totally different people. But who was Jesus? Was he divine? You better believe he was. Who was he? Maybe jot some scriptures down. Genesis 1.26 Where it says, God said, Let us make man in our image. Well, the word God is Elohim. It's a plural word. Who was God talking to? Himself. He said, Let us make man in our image. Who was there with him? Go to John chapter 1. Verse 1. See, these are not discrepancies in the Bible. These are things that make sense out of the Bible. John mentions in verse 1 of chapter 1, in the beginning, that the creation, at the very beginning, was the Word. And the Word is talking about Jesus Christ, the one who became Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. made. And in him is life. And the life was the light of men. It's talking about Jesus Christ. He was in the very beginning with God, he was involved in the creation with God. That's what the Bible makes very clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 is what many people today don't understand. You know, I've heard people say, that God of the Old Testament, he's just a mean old character. He's bloody. He was bad news. I think this guy from England, um, Peter Dawkins, writes his book, he says the Old Testament is weird. He said it's just weird. He's making a lot of money writing these books. And the crazier statements he can make, the more crazy they are, the more out there they are, the more people kind of kind of like to read stuff like that and pay money for it. But in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter ten, notice Paul is talking about we all ate the same spiritual food. He's talking about the ancestors of Israel. We all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank. Talking about the Israelites coming out of Egypt through the wilderness. They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. He was the God of the Old Testament. Now, you can do your own study on this, but look up uh, Deuteronomy chapter thirty-two, verse four. Deuteronomy thirty-two, verse four. Also in uh, Proverbs, excuse me, Psalm eighteen, verse two, and Daniel two, verse forty-five, where references to rock refers to Jesus Christ so these are things that you can prove on your own as to who Jesus Christ was in John 1 verse 41 when Andrew went to find Peter he said we have found the Messiah and that Messiah was the son of God he's called that in the Bible so you can prove who Jesus Christ was he was divine why did he come to this earth? The world understands, the so called Christian world understands. He came to die for the sins of mankind. But he also came with a message about the coming kingdom of God that's going to be set up on this earth. Matthew 1, verses 14 and 15. He talked about uh, the gift of eternal life. You know, if you're going to reign for a thousand years, you're going to have to have eternal life. And as those of us get older, eternal life sounds better and better. Because we get a new body. We get a fresh start. You know, as an 18-year-old, I wasn't overly interested in that. I could wait on that. But at 72, it sounds much better. (laughs) But this was part of the Gospel. About a coming kingdom of God on this earth. Where the saints are going to reign with Jesus Christ. That's very clearly in the Bible. If you've not done it, I would encourage you to get a copy of the book The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. Read through chapter 15. Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire chapter 15 by Edward Gibbon. Gibbon was not a fan of Christianity, but he could read the Bible and he could read what was there. And he also understood history. He said the doctrine of the millennium. The thousand-year reign of Christ and the saints on earth was the reigning sentiment among orthodox believers in the early years of the church. He said that's what the church believed about a coming kingdom of God on this earth. He said that was a driving factor in the spread of Christianity because people got excited about that. Reigning for a thousand years with Jesus Christ on this earth. And then he said that view was gradually viewed as an allegory and then as a doubtless uh, and useless opinion and then basically rejected as heresy. And then the Catholic Church began to claim we are the kingdom of God. Read the history of the Catholic Church. Not quite the kingdom of God. Not quite the kingdom of God. I've been to uh, Salzburg several times. The biggest structure in Salzburg is the the castle of the archbishop up on a mountain. The next biggest impressive building in Salzburg is the house of his girlfriend. He was a bishop. He's not supposed to be married. He knew that. But it was kind of defiant. That's where my my, uh, my girlfriend lives, down there in that big house. This is the history of the Catholic Church. It's interesting, Dr. Ehrman understands that the gospel in the Bible is about a coming kingdom of God. And he makes some very interesting statements. He said that Jesus of the Bible never kept Sunday. The Jesus of the Bible was looking for a kingdom to be set up on this earth, that he was wrong. It didn't happen. He was disillusioned. Ehrman follows Schweitzer's ideas. These ideas live. They continue. What I liked about uh, Erman's comment was, he says that uh, later Christians de-apocalypticized the message of Jesus Christ. They de-emphasized prophetic aspects. And they started talking about, it's all about love. And it's all about going to heaven. So here's a scholar that recognizes what's in the Bible. And his big issue is with orthodox Christianity that doesn't follow the Bible. Why is all this important? We need to wind this down and end. Critics today claim that Jesus is a myth. He never existed. But the evidence doesn't back up that statement. And I think some of the critics know it, but they say it and assume that nobody else really understands, so they'll believe. They're projecting their own opinions about miracles. It's interesting, again, Ehrman makes the statement of, uh, the virgin birth and the miracles probably never happened, but then he says scholars can't really comment because they can't prove it didn't happen. These are some interesting admissions. Jesus was divine. There's plenty of evidence to back that up. Jesus did preach about a coming kingdom of God that was going to be on this earth. It was a very exciting concept. Today critics and believers often ignore some very important prophecies. I want to look at just a couple more. Turn to John chapter 14. John 14. Again this is a scripture that's misunderstood today, but when you understand it in context, it's a very exciting prophecy. Jesus, Jesus is talking the night of his crucif- night before his crucifixion to his disciples. So let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house. There are many mansions, there are many positions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself and that where I am, you will be also. People are told that's in heaven today. If you go back and read Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 9, it talks about the day of the Lord. Christ returns to this earth. His feet are going to stand upon the Mount of Olives. and he's going to, The saints are going to be with him, and he's going to be king over all the earth. That's what the book says. That's what the book says. Revelation 17 it says those who will be with him Revelation 17 verse 14 those who will be with him the saints are called they're chosen and they're faithful they've been called out of this world to begin to understand the truth they're chosen because they've obeyed God and they're faithful because they didn't lose their faith they proved it They held on to it. They didn't let go of it. Brethren, today there are a lot of opinions being presented as facts. But we need to remember that opinions and speculations of unconverted men are not facts. They're opinions and they're speculations. And those opinions don't agree with the scriptures. We need to remember, brethren, that there is such a thing as truth. And truth matters. Truth is not the same thing as opinions. We need to understand there is such a thing as truth. Jesus Christ lived. He existed. This was his message. And it's a message that runs through the Scripture about a coming kingdom of God, about gaining eternal life, about ruling with Jesus Christ on this earth. Jesus Christ is real He exists and that Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth in person i surprise some people He's going to return in person and He's going to fulfill the details of His teaching I would encourage you brethren don't brush aside what we've been talking about in the sermon today well that's inconsequential it's just uh, intellectual stuff Now, this stuff is spreading through our society today. We need to understand the arguments. We need to understand the people who are saying these things and what they are not saying. I would encourage you, don't be too busy to prepare to defend the faith. Don't be too busy to prepare to defend the faith. Because the faith that you defend... And the lives that you save could be your own. Could be your own. So let's prove these things. Let's hold on to these things. Let's not take them lightly so that we can be in the coming kingdom of God and reign with the real Jesus Christ on earth.